What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Today's guest probably single-handedly has shaped Jenna and I as dietitians. Um, We can easily say that. We had Christy Harrison on our podcast who is a registered dietitian. She has her master's in public health and she's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian as well. Um, She has that credential. So she is an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor um, and journalist. She's the author of Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money and Wellbeing and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Um, And her second book, which we talk a lot about on this episode, is going to be called Rethinking Wellness. And I believe that comes out next year in 2022. Both of her books are from Little Brown Spark, um, is her publishing company. And since 2013, Christy has hosted the Food Psych podcast, which is her weekly podcast exploring people's relationships with food and path to body liberation. It has been one of Apple's top 100 health podcasts for the past five years, which is freaking insane, <laughs> reaching tens of thousands of listeners worldwide each week. In addition to her own media work, Christy offers online courses, private intuitive eating coaching to help people all over the world make peace with food and their bodies. Christy began her career in 2003 as a journalist covering food, nutrition, and health, and she's written for publications including the New York Times, Self, BuzzFeed, Wired, Refinery29, Gourmet, Slate, The Food Network, and many more. Learn more about Christy and her work at ChristyHarrison.com, and Sam and I would like to take a moment here to tell you all about how she has impacted our own lives personally. Um, For me specifically, every single client that I have worked with since reading her book, or I should say listening to it, I started reading it, and then I switched over to the Audible version because at the time... I was really bored of just listening to the same five songs on my walks. And I remember needing a book and I decided to listen to it. And her voice made all the difference to me. Um, I remember walking around my neighborhood doing the same laps with Quincy, my dog at the time, and either crying or legitimately like cheering and like pumping my fists in the air, like, like a wild person, because every word that she said, I was like, I can't believe somebody else is saying the things that I feel so deeply or validating my feelings or putting out there things that I've thought that I haven't researched myself or just saying things that I know in my heart to be so true. And I listened to this book early on in my splinter assing time and it, it truly pushed me over the fence. 
<laughs> and it made me really just believe so much more in this process and this work. And that was it for me. And ever since listening to that book, I, like I said, every client that I've ever worked with, it has been required listening or reading. It has been encouraged for people that I speak to via DMs or on social media. It is my first recommendation because I found this book to be educational, inspiring, and relatable. And I think that's a really hard three to achieve in a nutrition book, quote unquote. Yes. Couldn't agree more with everything <laughs> about her book. So I can't even imagine how great Rethinking Wellness, her new book will be. And I apologize, I misspoke. That's going to be published in imprint in 2023, not 2022. So don't get, you know, don't hold Excited. me to that. <laughs> yes. But um, for me, it all started actually with Food Psych Podcast. I remember finding her podcast somehow, I think through Haley Goodrich, who was on her podcast, like in the beginning stages. And I was like, I would like listen to it. I would go to the beach and walk every day and like listen to it. And I would definitely cry and be like, what am I doing as a dietitian? Like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, and I didn't, I just like knew what she's saying was right, but had no idea how to like make that like my, my truth. And then when I went to a symposium in fall 2019 with Fiona and Haley Goodrich, Fiona Sutherland and Haley Goodrich, that's where I was leaving the um, symposium. <laughs> I was bawling talking to Fiona and Haley about how I didn't know how I was going to switch my practice to intuitive eating. And I've harmed all these people with diet culture. And I like <laughs> see out of the corner of my eye, like Christy Harrison walking up because she's good friends with Fiona and Haley. And I was like, you've got to be shitting me because I was like <laughs> bawling and I like love Christy and look up to her more than anyone <laughs> And that's funny that when we signed on today, she was like, oh, I thought you looked familiar. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably because I was like falling when I met you. Sorry. Unforgettable. Um, yeah. Yeah. But she, she just, it's amazing that her podcast is just so relevant and it's just, she's amazing in so many different ways. And so we are just so grateful that we were able to have her on this podcast and she shares a little personal nugget of information at the end. She just drops a bomb that we had no idea. Um, so we're so excited. You have to listen. We're not going to share what that personal bomb mm -hmm. is. So we're going <laughs> to want to stay at the end because that truly surprised Jenna and I. Well, it was just so special. And Christy, when you listen to this, thank you so much again for your time. We are so excited for this next book to come out. And for anybody that hasn't read or listened to Anti-Diet yet, this is your sign to do that before the next book comes out. I'm sure it's going to complement it perfectly. Yes. And then this is a <laughs> perfect segue into learning all about what our next book is about and just how sneaky wellness culture is and kind of where it comes from and all the conspiracies that come along with it. So you're going to enjoy today's episode. It is such a good one. So enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Today, our guest literally needs no introduction because we can just say her name and everybody in our community will know who she is. So thank you so much, Christy Harrison, for being here with us today. Mm, thank you so much for having me. It's yes. lovely to be with you. Yes. So we love to start with all of our guests just seeing, you know, where have we got, how have you gotten to where you are today? So both professionally and personally, 
Uh, I know Jenna and I have read your story and it's everywhere on the internet, but we would love for you to just share with our community how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah, I'll give a bit of an abridged version, I guess. Um, but I think the personal and the professional really sort of dovetailed for me, which is that, you know, I started my career in 2003 as a journalist and was had just graduated from college and was sort of, you know, trying to get my footing in this new career and also was struggling with disordered eating. Undiagnosed, really like would have met the criteria for an eating disorder at the time, but I was undiagnosed because of weight stigma, basically, even though I've always been in a smaller body, the therapist that I saw and sought help from sort of had this idea of an eating disorder that was this emaciated body that mine was not. And so, you know, I un unfortunately sort of flew under the radar. Um, and so I was struggling in my own relationship with food, not eating enough, and basically obsessed with food as a result. And that led me to be really attracted to reporting on food and nutrition and health and all the things that I was obsessed with and spending all my free time, you know, Googling about and researching on, or in the early days, maybe it was even like yahooing about or something because it was, it was pretty early internet back then. But, um, so I was, I, I started reporting on those beats and got more and more sort of into the environmental, um, aspect of things and, you know, writing about sustainability, organics, and kind of early wellness culture, really. It was sort of, um, you know, early days of Michael Pollan and the omnivore's dilemma came along after I was like three years into this, this beat and this reporting. But, you know, I was really interested in like his work and Marion Nessel and Eric Schlosser and just all about food politics and sustainability. And looking back, I can really see how that type of thinking, while, you know, certainly I, it, it jibed with my environmentalist values, it also really um, drove me into orthorexia, to obsession with quote unquote healthy eating. So I would agonize over what to purchase, you know, the local sustainable organic, the, um, should I go for, you know, organic that's, that's, you know, big box or something that's not organic, but that's local and you know, just spending hours kind of comparing and obsessing over different types of foods and looking at restaurant menus. And, you know, it was all, it, it all sort of um, bled together in my mind, this idea of like purity and health and quote unquote wellness, but it was kind of before that was even really a buzzword. Um, and then also like weight loss, right? The idea of losing weight and suppressing my weight and, you know, counting calories. And so I was, I was counting calories. I was trying to cut carbs. I was trying to do all this sustainability stuff. And so it was really a pretty big mess in my head when it came to food and nutrition. Um, but fortunately I had some good, um, role models in my life. I think I had, I, was friends with a lot of food writers. I actually dated a food writer who I think really sort of helped pull me out of the worst of the eating disorder because I could definitely see myself going down this other path of like even more restriction and compensation and really detrimental behaviors. But when I got together with him, we started going out to restaurants a lot and food adventures. And I was like, you know, I have to be cool. I have to show him that I'm 
down to go to all these different places and eat all this different food. And so in my own kind of free time, I would still restrict and do weird things with food. But when I was with him, I would eat pretty normally and adventurously. And then, you know, as we started spending more and more time together, I started doing less and less of the weird stuff on my own, I think, and just it got me out of really the worst of it. It's kind of like a de facto meal support. Um, and then, you know, flash forward a few years, I started working at Gourmet Magazine, which is now sadly closed, but I was there in the last two and a half years or so of its existence. Um, and, you know, met some people there who had really good relationships with food and also some people who had, you know, later I learned disordered relationships with food that we kind of bonded over. But, um, you know, at the time I was really sort of gravitating toward the people who seemed to be super cool with food. And um, so while I was reporting on things like the quote unquote obesity epidemic, which I shudder to think about now, I also was sort of personally kind of coming back to a more intuitive relationship with food. And I should say, I usually start the story actually by saying like, I had a very intuitive relationship with food growing up. I was fortunate in that I was, uh, we always had enough food, so I never had food insecurity interfering with my intuitive eating skills. And I also have always been in a relatively small body. And so nobody ever told me I needed to lose weight. I had what's known as thin privilege, which just means, you know, the privilege of not having people think you're too big and tell you you need to lose weight and interfere um, in your relationship with food and your body. And so I was actually able to be an intuitive eater up until the age of 20. And that's when kind of the problem started and, you know, went on my first diet and um, tumbled into that disordered eating. So as I went along in my food writing career and you know, reporting on nutrition and health, it was kind of like these two polar opposite things in my head. You know, there was the side of me that was adventurous with food and was getting back to that intuitive eating kind of love and pleasure with food, <clears throat> excuse me, and the satisfaction piece. Um, but then I was also sort of increasingly obsessed with, you know, the food environment and how it might be supposedly affecting people's weight and health and um, started doing a lot more work on that. Fortunately, I mean, this is like, could be a whole long book into unto itself probably, this whole journey. But um, fortunately at, at a certain point, I ended up discovering the book Intuitive Eating in some research I was doing for a book that I never ended up writing, but that kind of became the basis in a lot of ways of like the next decade of my work. And that book idea was about emotional eating, so-called emotional eating. And in the process of researching that, I discovered Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch's book, Intuitive Eating, and brought that into my therapy because I was also in therapy at the time, not really related to disordered eating, but my therapist did eventually pick up on like, you seem to have some stuff going on here with food. Um, and so we started working through the intuitive eating book. And I think that really just launched my interest in doing this kind of work. So when I ultimately became a dietitian, I decided to start specializing in eating disorders, disordered eating, and intuitive eating. And, um, you know, I think it, it helped take me deeper and deeper into the research on health at every size, um, weight bias, you know, how weight stigma affects well-being, um, and 
all of the things that we talk about today. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I've read your book three times. I should say I've listened to it three times because every time I pick up on something different and I feel like your, your story and your book is one of the only ones that I've read where I was like, somebody understands me. <laughs> every word of your story is so relatable. And so thank you so much for putting that out there again for us. Something that I, I actually didn't know is when you went back to get your RD, was it frustrating for you having done all of this unlearning and getting into intuitive eating yourself to go through the dietitian process and sit in those classes that we all know at this point are pretty outdated when it comes to the work that we do? Yeah, you know, it was, it was actually, I think, I was fortunate in a way in that I had to work my entire way through school. I was already, you know, self-sustaining and didn't really have like parental support. I had some student loans and stuff, but I had to work my way through school as well. And so it took me a long time to do my dietetic, um, what does the DPD stand for? I forget, didactic program in dietetics and my yeah. master's of public health. It was like a four-year process. And so... Um, I think, you know, at the beginning of that, I was certainly still disordered with food. I was, I kind of got sucked in even further, I think, when I first got into the dietetics program, just because, you know, everybody seemed to be eating so quote unquote perfectly. And I think there's a culture of, in certain dietetics programs anyway, and certainly, you know, in, at NYU in the early 2010s or late 2000s to that, you know, late first decade of this um, millennium, it was very uh, sort of keeping up with the Joneses in a way I felt like, you know, eating the most local sustainable, you know, sort of, there's a little bit of a foodie culture, but it was also very much like small portions. And, you know, I just, I felt like other people were watching what I ate and I was certainly watching what other people ate. Um, so I think it did actually trigger some things for me and make things worse in a way. Um, but I think a real, I, I didn't actually discover the book Intuitive Eating until I think my second year. And um, I think a turning point for me was I think that's later that same year, we had to do the um, activity where you weigh yourself and you measure, you know, different like points on your body with calipers and measure and tape measure and stuff and sort of determine like what your quote unquote ideal weight is supposed to be. And when I did all those calculations, my supposed ideal weight was the lowest weight I had been in my eating disorder. And I at first kind of freaked out and was like, okay, I got to like get back there. That's what my ideal weight is. How am I going to do this? And then I pretty quickly realized you know, that that's pretty messed up. Like the way that I achieved that weight was through so much restriction and deprivation and had come to learn enough in the nutrition program at that point to know what I was doing before was not quote unquote healthy. And so, you know, I sort of decided, well, I think this so-called ideal weight is not really for me. It doesn't actually represent what works for my body and I started learning more about it and realizing that it was actually pretty outdated as a way of calculating supposed ideal weight and you know much later sort of realized that the concept of ideal weight in and of itself is highly problematic um, but I think that early sort of experience of hey this doesn't actually work for me and this is pretty outdated and messed up um, helped inform the rest of my 
sort of approach to the DPD and to, you know, my public health and nutrition classes as well. So um, definitely helped to have some critical thinking <laughs> involved. And I had done my undergraduate actually in rhetoric and French literature. So um, rhetoric is all about kind of critical thinking. So I think I sort of had that reawakened as well. Like, oh, right, of course, everything we're being taught here is not gospel. And I have to, you know, figure out what of this I'm going to take with me and what of this I need to leave behind, um, which I think was actually very much reinforced by a class that I took called the Social and Behavioral Determinants of Health, which blew my mind and pretty much all my classmates' minds, I think, especially those of us who were in the public health nutrition concentration, because it very much showed that, yeah, we think of nutrition as such an important piece of, you know, such an important determinant of health, but actually these social determinants like experiencing racism and discrimination, housing insecurity, um, you know, low income, lack of control in your work, like lack of a sense of agency in your job, those things actually matter a whole lot more to health than what you eat and how you move your body. Um, so I think I had some fortunate experiences along the way, and then I was able to kind of, you know, just hold my nose and do some of the other work that uh, didn't align really with what I believed. But I wasn't, I w certainly was not as, um, you know, ensconced in the health at every size and anti-diet and intuitive eating frameworks as I am now. And I think if I had been, I think if I had been like a listener to my own podcast or to this podcast, or, you know, if I had had that sort of resource at the time, it might've been a lot harder actually to reconcile the um, cognitive dissonance of like, what I was learning outside of class and then what I was learning inside. Yeah, that's, that's good points you brought up. And we have so many dietetic students and RDs to be that, or, you know, anyone in the health and wellness field that listen to this and they struggle with that of hearing like our podcast, but then having to sit through classes that are air quotes, weight management classes or whatever it is. So that's awesome that you had a class on the determinants of health. Like so jealous because Jenna and I did not get that at Penn State. Um, but so I think one thing we wanted to talk about today too is obviously when we keep referencing Christy's book right now, we were talking about anti-diet, but there is another book to come that we are so excited about um, called Rethinking Wellness. And wellness culture, heavy air quotes, right? Healthy lifestyles, heavy air quotes are all over social media. And to think back when you started, you know, your journey and the story that you told us, like social media maybe was barely in existence. We know TikTok definitely wasn't in existence <laughs> and there's so much crap on there of people giving wellness tips. So let us know like what inspired this book? What can we expect for this book and what can we be excited about? Yeah, such a great question. So I think the thing that really inspired this book, you know, a couple things. One is my own experience, right, of having gone through this orthorexic phase and this really obsession with eating in the quote unquote right way and how that sort of early stage, you know, Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle, Eric Schlosser kind of influence 
turned into what we now see in wellness culture, you know, in part. I mean, there's other influences as well, like the naturopathy movement and sort of like healthism in general and health food culture um, that I think contributed as well to kind of where we are today. Um, but, you know, it's just so fascinating to me to sort of trace, like, how did we get here and the development of the internet and sort of the role that that has played in um, the growth of wellness culture and the proliferation of wellness misinformation online has been so fascinating to me, especially in light of, you know, recent events like January 6th and sort of the role that the internet played in radicalizing people there and the anti-vax movement with COVID and how um, social media has really amplified anti-vax in a new way. And so I think, you know, all of these sort of different things are outside of the scope of just, you know, f food and diet, but it's it's all related. It's all so interrelated. Another thing I think that inspired me was seeing clients who have gotten sucked into these things. So not only are they eating in a restrictive way and, you know, following these wellness diet trends that are harming them and, you know, creating a lot of disorder in their relationships with food, but they're also getting into some really kind of messed up other stuff, you know, like um, thinking that they have quote unquote leaky gut and sort of taking a million supplements for that or um, being told that they need to do a candida cleanse and that yeast is somehow taking over their entire body and causing chronic issues. Um, and so, you know, of course, you can get yeast infections, and actually there are, like, in very, very rare cases, a few hundredths of a percent, I think, of people can get systemic candida infections throughout their body. But that's such a rare thing, and it's such a completely different thing than this sort of fake, you know, quote-unquote systemic candida or quote-unquote candida overgrowth that wellness culture likes to um, – you know, spout off about and tell, you know, everyone under the sun kind of now who goes to a naturopath or um, functional medicine practitioner, it feels like, you know, most people who are in that world kind of end up getting a diagnosis of something like candida or leaky gut or chronic Lyme disease or, you know, these things that are just really not backed up by good evidence. And I wanted to do a deep dive on that because I had seen so many of my clients fall prey to that. Adrenal fatigue is another one, you know, and it was when I was working with some folks, I kind of was like, oh, do I touch this? Is this something that, you know, we even need to go into here if they're seeing me for their relationship with food? And how do I handle this? You know, how do I sort of address this with people? Because I think it's, it's all of a piece, right? It's all this sort of misinformation and, um, you know, these really harmful and toxic beliefs about not just food, but everything that goes into our body and everything that we do with our body and do to take care of our body, that we can get so obsessive about our so-called wellness that we actually completely uh, miss out on true well-being and really um, are harming and, and, you know, denigrating our ability to experience true well-being, which I define as, you know, really a, a, a holistic and much more holistic than wellness culture makes it out to be, um, sense of, of, you know, feeling good in your mental health, in your physical well-being to the extent that that's available to you, um, your social connections and relationships and, you know, 
economically and having having your needs met as well. So social determinants of health, I think, play a huge role in true well-being. And I think true well-being is a resource that's available to people no matter what their background is, but that's going to be, you know, probably a lot harder to attain actually in more difficult circumstances. And so, you know, my goal with this book, I think, is to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on like what is what actually goes into true well-being and what are the lies that wellness culture has sold us and it's really tricky and interesting i'm working on a chapter now about like ways of knowing other than western well ways of knowing including western science but also outside of western science and i've been really finding in wellness culture that there's this sort of interesting relationship with science where, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, science doesn't know and, you know, Western medicine doesn't get me, right? And some of that I feel like is really true. And, you know, certainly in my own experience and in other people's experience who are more marginalized than I am, you know, definitely feeling like Western medicine doesn't necessarily get it or have our best interests at heart or have time for us or even, you know, in the cases of people with lower incomes is even available, right? Um, and yet, I think that wellness culture has sort of seized on that understandable um, sort of frustration with what's on offer in Western, in Western medicine and has twisted it and turned it into this, this you know, kind of high, super highway leading toward all this misinformation. Like, yeah, Western medicine doesn't get you. Come over here where we know that the real cause of all your, you know, every ache and pain you're experiencing is candida. Or come over here where we understand that, you know, only ancient ways of knowing that are non-Western have any value and all the Western stuff just needs to be thrown out. And I think that's really dangerous and also really opens the door for a lot of cultural appropriation of non-Western sources of healing. And I've talked to a number of people who are practitioners in those non-Western modalities who say like, yeah, this is getting so twisted and so taken out of context. And, you know, people shouldn't be cherry picking, um, you know, modal cherry picking um, tools from certain modalities and sort of grafting them onto um, this wellness culture hybrid of like sort of the worst of Western medicine and um, faux versions of, you know, non-Western um, healing modalities. And, you know, I think there's also this lionization of everything that's non-Western in a way that really sort of verges on, um, you know, one of my, one of my sources, Natalia Melman Petrozella says, you know, orient orientalism, right? It's this fetishization of the East and sort of commodification and objectification of it that is really not um, aligned with, you know, understanding the culture and seeing people as human beings and um, offering people tools that are really beneficial to them. So, there's a lot there. There's a lot in this book that I think is, you know, goes beyond kind of what I've had the chance to articulate in anti-diet, but it's certainly still, you know, from a basis of anti-diet culture and um, intuitive eating and sort of unpacking all the ways in which wellness culture drives people to disordered eating, but also looking at some of these other kind of cultural influences and these other 
dubious diagnoses and contested cures and scams and conspiracy theories that influence wellness culture and that's unfortunately some people are getting sucked into when they sort of just went a bit down the road of like, I wonder if I could, you know, fix my digestion. I wonder if I could address my eczema. And suddenly they're in this, you know, soup of just toxicity. Wow. I was actually listening to one of your podcast episodes this morning with Marcy Evans about gut health in general. And that episode had my brain spinning um, because the way that the two of you articulated all of that information, it's just something everyone needs to hear. So everybody, that's episode 175 of Food Psych. Don't go or please go and listen to that. But we want to respect your time, Christy. Thank you so much for being here. For anybody that already does not follow you, can you please let them know where they can find you on the internet and for more updates on this incredible book that's coming? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has flown by. Um, <laughs> and people can find me at my website, christyharrison.com. There you can find out about my podcast, Food Psych. You can also find Food Psych probably wherever you're listening to this. Um, if you just type it into the search bar, Food Psych is two words, no E at the end, P-S-Y-C-H. Um, and then my book, Anti-Diet, is in bookstores pretty much everywhere, depending on where you are in the world, but you can find it you know, certainly in most American and uh, North American bookstores, if you just go into the store um, and find it online in other places as well. And then I also do a weekly newsletter called Food Psych Weekly, which you can learn more about and subscribe to at christyharrison.com slash newsletter. That's the thing I'm like really active on the most right now because I have a little hiatus on my podcast while I'm working on the next book. Um, we're doing rerun episodes, so we're reposting fan favorites like that episode with Marcy Evans. It's actually coming up in a few months as a repost. Um, so people who are new to the podcast and who subscribe can hear lots of our best content. Um, but then we'll be coming back with new episodes, hopefully in early 2022, um, probably sometime around May or so, because I'm actually also currently pregnant and I'm going to be taking a maternity leave in the early part of the year. So anyway, the best place to, to sort of stay in touch and hear about all my happenings is the newsletter, which again is christyharrison.com slash newsletter. Congratulations. Thank so you. Nice. And all say, of the things. You know, I was going to say, I read your I read your weekly newsletter and I love it. And I was reading your Candida one like right before we got on. Oh, nice. But congratulations on the pregnancy. What a great way to end this. So yes. nice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Good news to sign off. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there, and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves, and follow along with us on social at what the actual fork pod we promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics greatest guests and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit we love you we appreciate you and we will see you next week for a lot more fun look around you can find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time 
Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.